As I stand before you this morning, it is certainly an honorable privilege that we each have today to assemble in the presence of God. For isn't it true that we read in Psalm 89, verse number 7, God is greatly to be feared in the assembly of the saints and to be had in reverence of all them that are about Him. And we mentioned earlier, even in our prayer, the importance of the attitude of reverence and homage and devotion and worship and how blessed we are to begin this week, this first day of the week on this particular day, with an appreciation of exactly the greatness of God and how blessed we each are to be able to serve in His kingdom and to have and entertain that hope of an eternal home in heaven. You may have noted in the bulletin as well as the question on the wall to my left, who is a Christian? There are many things that could be developed based on a lesson with that title, but our approach to it may be a bit unusual in the following sense. By way of some introductory thoughts, might I ask you to consider these. That word Christian, the very last word in that question, is one that in fact brings a great deal of confusion in our world. It is a word that brings a great deal of uncertainty because of the variety of ways in which that word has come to be used. A word that seemingly has such a latitude in the thing to which it refers. In fact, you'll notice almost immediately that as that uncertainty and as that confusion develops, most of that we shall find is due to the thinking of man. I would submit that as we devote our lesson today to thinking, what does the, the book of books say about a Christian? How does it give us the way to define one? How can that word correctly and properly and rightly be used? For example, we well understand that in many instances our nation is called a Christian nation. Any number of people refer to themselves as Christians. By the biblical definition, are they Christians? Let's see as we proceed on our study this morning. Let's use the inspired text and allow it to identify for us who and who is not a Christian. In fact, in Romans 4 verse 3, what saith the Scripture? An overwhelmingly powerful and potent question. Paul's interest on that occasion was not what men say, not what the definition of councils and conventions may affirm, not what the so-called scholars of the day may have in mind, his intent and his desire. What saith the Scripture? And that is our goal and our wish also this morning. It is with that in mind that we perhaps should do well to set the stage first a bit more thoroughly about the character of the confusion. And then we'll try to clear the water by letting God and His sacred text and Word clear up those difficulties for us. As we mention this matter of confusion based on the way the word Christian is employed, here is a definition from a rather well-known dictionary as to what the word Christian means. A believer in Jesus as the Messiah prophesied in the Old Testament or in the religion based on the teachings of Jesus. Again, that's taken from Webster's New World Dictionary and Thesaurus. That's this particular person or group of people's definition for what constitutes a Christian. You might again lay some emphasis on a believer in Jesus as the Messiah prophesied in the Old Testament. I would suspect that there are many in our world today who, though they would take great pride in a definition like that, there would be some disagreement as to the specifics and as to the application. We shall find, in fact, in our study this morning, there are many things about that that should appear problematic to us. 
Again, the question, who is a Christian by God's definition? We might well begin by noting at the bottom some of the things the world asserts as to those defining characteristics of being a Christian. For example, there are some who would say that any person who attends a so-called religious organization and their assemblies, a church service if you please, that person would be a Christian. For others, they might go so far as to say that it must require some kind of baptism, be it in water or something else, but at least in their mind, there would be a necessity of some form or kind of baptism. Others might in fact say this, You must believe that Jesus lived in the flesh and that in some form the New Testament is His revealed will, and you must adhere to that at least in the most part of your life. For others, they might well say, as long as you believe that Jesus died for you, and as long as you thus give some adherence to what the New Testament says, live a good, clean life, you can be called a Christian. Do you begin to see the confusion? There's a lot of different things in what we just said. And you can already see there would be a wide difference of opinion as to what some groups would be willing to call a Christian and what some would not. Again, the point is, it should be our interest not to go by what some group may have said. According to this book, who is a Christian? Am I a faithful one and are you a faithful one? But the point is, according to this book, who satisfies the definition of a Christian? For the remainder of our lesson this morning, let's then look at a number of passages in which that thought is put before us. And as we consider those texts, we will make a listing of those characteristics that go along with the matter of being a Christian. To do that, we'll in fact begin in the following way. I would point in your attention to the following thought and idea. The word Christian occurs in the Greek text only three times in the New Testament. And in fact, that's also true in English. Only three times in the New Testament does that word appear. It thus seems to be the case and almost goes without saying that those passages must be critical elements in defining who and who is not a Christian. I've even listed for you there at the opening part of that slide those passages wherein those words are found. Acts 11.26, Acts 26.28 and 1 Peter 4, verse 16. That is an exhaustive listing of all the places in which the Word appears. If we now revisit them and begin to look at the characteristics of them, we will find some of the following things so readily put before us. First of all, in that text that Joey read for us just a moment ago in Acts eleven twenty six, that passage again reads, And when he had found him... He brought him unto Antioch, and it came to pass that a whole year they assembled themselves with the church and taught much people. And the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. This particular scene of events, of course, occurred prior to the opening missionary journey of Paul. And inasmuch as some of these details concerning the original matters in Antioch, we notice the word Christian was employed. We next notice in Acts 26, 28, on this occasion as Paul stood before Agrippa, that person who had the liberty and the occasion to make cause of judgment on the case of Paul, 
it was Paul who in fact preached so thoroughly, powerfully, and mightily about the nature of the gospel, the character of the Christ. And it was on that occasion that Grippa said, Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. But then we come to 1 Peter 4 verse 16. And on this occasion, we find that as Peter directed this epistle to those who were suffering so mightily and greatly for the cause of Christ, he reminded them that their suffering was not in vain, that in fact they should ever cling tightly to the word of the Master, even despite the oppressions and difficulties that might come. And it was in verse 16, he said, If any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God on this behalf. In fact, the American Standard rendering is a bit closer to the original Greek. And it is such a beautiful phrase. In that it reads, If any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this name. What name? The name Christian. We have thus looked at those three occurrences in which that word has occurred. May we now begin to revisit them and to put together a listing of some of the characteristics that go along with them. First of all, Acts eleven twenty six, the disciples were called Christians first in Antioch. You'll notice that the structure of that sentence lets us appreciate this. The word disciples is the subject, were called is the verb, and we find that word Christian is a predicate nominative, thus equating the two things. And so we immediately learn that disciples and Christians were one and the same, telling us that these particular disciples were in fact called Christians, and that helps us thus notice that a Christian is a disciple. And thus it remains so until this day. A Christian, first and foremost, is a disciple. So we might ask, what is a disciple? As you can see, a disciple is thus a person who is a pupil, one who sits at the feet of a teacher and proceeds to implant in his life the things the teacher has asserted, the lifestyles, the various and sundry things that the teacher has put forth. The disciple wants to imitate them, to live like the teacher has set forth. A Christian is a disciple. Who is our teacher? The word Christian alone identifies that. Christ. Thus, our teacher is the Christ, and you and I as Christians are disciples of His. We seek to imitate Him. We seek to live as He has directed. We seek, in fact, to put into practice and implementation those things that Christ has taught and those things that He has demanded. It is true in light of that that we notice that powerful idea that a Christian is a disciple. Throughout the Bible, we encounter those disciples of the Pharisees and those disciples of John the Baptist and those disciples of the prophets of the Old Testament. But in each instance, those disciples follow their teacher. Those disciples of John the Baptist sought to follow John. Might we ask, who are you and I trying to follow? Is it some man, some group, some person, or is it the Christ? As Christians, we must follow the Christ. In addition, you'll notice that a Christian is something else. For those disciples were learners. They sought to develop a deeper and more thorough knowledge of those things the teacher taught. A learner. 
That thus highlights for you and for me the fact then that as Christians we must ever seek to be learners. We mustn't allow ourselves to become stagnant, but ever strive to know more and more about not only that Christ, but of the will that He set forth and of His desire for your life and for mine. There's another way that Acts 11.26 points that out. Did you notice with me earlier in the verse it says that when Saul came that he, along with Barnabas, taught much people. There was teaching taking place. Teaching was, in fact, going on. And so we can appreciate still today that as Christians, we need to be learners. Is your knowledge and my knowledge of the sacred text and of the will of God and of the Christ, is that a knowledge that's increasing in time? It is, is it a circumstance in which we seek occasions in which that knowledge can, in fact, increase? Do we assemble ourselves on the Bible study hours so that we can learn more of the Christ? That's a very important question, isn't it? Because you see, a Christian is a a disciple as well as a learner. If I'm not learning about Christ, if I'm not seeking to enhance that knowledge more fully and more completely, then by right am I a faithful Christian? As you can see from those two passages we thus notice that that particular message of the Christ is highlighted so clearly as the gospel. This message, this teaching, this will of God is in fact the gospel of Jesus Christ. Look at some of the ways in which these verses in fact highlight that thought. In 1 Corinthians 15 verses 1 through 4, when Paul, as he spoke to the church in Corinth, He directly said that, Moreover, brethren, I declare unto you the gospel which I preached unto you, which also ye heard, and wherein ye stand, unless ye have believed in vain. It is to be noted then that the singular message to which Paul directed their attention was the gospel of Jesus Christ. And it surrounded the Christ, His life, His death, His burial, His resurrection. And no wonder in 1 Corinthians 2, verses 1 and 2, Paul said... And I, brethren, when I came to you, came not with excellency of speech or of wisdom, declaring unto you the testimony of God. For I determined not to know anything among you save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. The sole message that Paul wished to share and to bring before them was the gospel. Today, that should still be the sole message to which the church turns its attention and to which in matters of religion you and I as individuals turn our attention, the gospel. Is your life and mine an open book that testifies to the truth and reality of this gospel? It should be if we're faithful Christians. But as you can see even beyond that, it's now apparent that a Christian is far more than what that opening definition from Webster's Dictionary asserted. It involves learning, It involves teaching. It involves, in fact, other things as we're now about to see. A Christian is one who, according to Acts 11.26, assembled with those present in the church. Go back again to that verse with me. It says that Barnabas and Paul assembled with the church and taught much people. It was that same church, again, that he says consisted of disciples who were, in fact, called Christians. The question again before us is this. Are you and I assembling when the church assembles? If we are, at least in that regard, we can be called those that are faithful Christians. But if we are forsaking those assemblies, 
how faithful are we? In Acts eleven twenty six, they assembled with the saints, and they were the ones that were called Christians. Is it any wonder that later in Hebrews ten twenty five, the inspired writer said, "Not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as the manner of some is." There were some even in that day that were forsaking the assemblies, and the Hebrew writer said, "Let it not be, but rather exhort one another, and so much the more as you see the day approaching." We are already appreciating then that again what the world deems a Christian is not the same as the Lord's definition. There are no doubt many this morning who have chosen to do any number of other things. They may be in a ball stadium somewhere for a number of NFL games, probably have already started. And yet they would no doubt call themselves a Christian. Now it may in fairness be said they went early this morning and to their credit if they did, that's great. But could some of them have chosen to forsake the assembly and choose rather to go to the game? I'd submit if they did that they have violated the very thing before us. They have placed something else in higher priority than in fact the service to the God of heaven. That of course is but one example. Others might still be at the house. Others may have chosen to do yard work or go fishing or play golf. Others may have just decided to read a book at the house this morning or even a newspaper. It doesn't matter what the other thing is. But these, at least in Acts eleven twenty six, those Christians were disciples who had assembled with the church. We might notice even beyond that, more things are involved in these descriptions. In addition... You'll notice in Acts eleven twenty six that they assembled with the church. But it was that church consisting of those disciples that were called Christians. And thus a person must be a member of the body of Christ. A person must be a member of the church. You'll notice that definition earlier said that a one who had some degree of belief in the New Testament, that definition won't satisfy the biblical definition Notice these were members of the church. And today, are you and I faithful members of that church? Consider, in fact, these ideas. We learn elsewhere in the New Testament what is involved in being a member of the church. It doesn't just happen because a person wants it to happen or because he or she thinks it has happened. It happens when a specific set of activities revealed by the Lord has taken place. In Galatians 3, verses 26 and 27, You're all the children of God by faith in Christ Jesus. For as many of you as have been baptized into Christ have put on Christ. And we thus find that these who were baptized were the ones in Christ. And we learn in Acts 2, 47, The Lord added to the church daily those that were being saved. Putting those passages together, we then readily appreciate that this matter of a Christian is far more specific than what the common worldly definition of the term is. You'll notice that those ideas that are given as prerequisites to baptism thus would be necessary for a person to be a Christian. Belief in Jesus, Mark 16, 16. Repentance of sins, Acts 2, 38. Confession audibly of the name of the Savior. Romans 10 verses 6 through 11. All of those are required prerequisites. And so unless a person has done those things, 
in the scriptural way, that person is not a Christian. The obedience to the gospel is thus a necessary prerequisite to an individual rightly being called a Christian. Obedience to the gospel. That kind of idea thus takes us to this point that's much closer to the bottom. A Christian is thus produced when a certain set of actions has taken place. Just because a person likes to use that word, I'm a Christian person, that doesn't mean that you are unless you have satisfied these necessary prerequisites and unless you, in fact, have carried them out in the way that God has said. Might I ask each of us then to notice there is a continental divide between the way that this word is used biblically and between the way that the world in so many ways chooses to use it. As if all of that isn't enough. Look at one of those other passages. That text taken especially from Acts 26 as well as 1 Peter 4. When Agrippa made the statement, Almost thou persuadest me to be a Christian. It's clear that Agrippa had already become to realize this man is preaching about a subject. And it is so earnest and so fervent and so ardent that even Agrippa was on the verge of a kind of response. But he had not responded yet. That word almost indicates despite the fact of whatever he may have believed, he wasn't yet a Christian. And yet today so many who even have a minor degree of belief are quick to say, but I'm a Christian. Not so by God's definition unless one has relinquished control of his life in faithful obedience to these things that God has revealed. And as if that isn't enough, what about Peter's version, his usage in 1 Peter 4.16? If any man suffer as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in this name. That is a name in which you and I can glorify God, lifting high His will, drawing others to the appreciation of what He would desire them to be. I have tried to state some of those things in the following way. You see, behind that is the notion of dedication. It's easy, isn't it? In the heat of a disagreement or a controversy where someone is challenging you and me in regard to our Christianity, it's easy to start to say things in which we do not boldly stand for the truth any longer. We're willing to, in fact, get out of the situation by allowing it to pass and thus deny, in a sense, the very basis of the word Christian on which we stand. That was far removed from what Peter described. He said, suffering as a Christian. And thus he highlighted the matter of dedication. With pride, wearing the name of Christ each and every day, regardless what the circumstances that Satan may bring our way, regardless of those difficulties that may often cloud our path, but to live with a degree of appreciation for the ability we have to wear that name. That, I suppose, asks each of us, how proud are you and I to wear that name? If someone on Tuesday, in fact, makes mention of that word, are we excited and happy to make note, yes, I'm a Christian because of the privileges that God has allowed me to enjoy and because of the reward and hopes that He has set forth in His Word. We shouldn't shy away from the name. We should lovingly cling to it. 
For the word Christian again links us to the Son of God. It links us to Christ. We're wearing His name. As special a thought as that is, I would point out then that that means we shouldn't be ashamed of the name. Far from being ashamed of it, we should seek opportunities to help others see how special that name is and how lovely it is to be able to wear it. I've asked you to consider with me some of these verses. In Philippians 1.17, Paul made reference to the fact, I am set for the defense of the gospel. Despite Paul's circumstances, namely he had been so often oppressed and opposed for the gospel, he nonetheless said, I'm still set for the defense of the gospel. You might also notice in 2 Timothy 3.12, that rather ever-present reminder that, yea, all who live godly in Christ Jesus shall suffer persecution. It is significant to notice godly in Christ Jesus, but that means Christian. So those who are faithful Christians, those who in fact cling to that name and who live it, will suffer some problems, difficulties, and persecutions. Perhaps finally we notice in 2 Timothy 2.12 that if we deny Him, He will deny us. Isn't it still amazing to revisit the way Paul so cherished that name. Before Agrippa, it's still remarkable that of all the things Paul preached, the word Christian was well associated with what Paul was preaching because it was Agrippa that said, Paul, you're almost persuading me to be a Christian. There was no other name associated with the movement of Christ than the name Christian. That was the heavenly designated name, and it's the only one given. There is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved, Acts 4.12. Thus it is that name or it's no name at all. To wear any other name is an insult to to the Christ. It's an insult to the will of God. It's an insult to the very plan and majesty of salvation and redemption. To give thought then to that name and to the other things that we have learned and asserted, It is this slide that brings together a few more features from these verses about being a Christian. Beginning from the top, I would ask you to notice that in our glorification of God through that name, it is again a very singular activity. It is not our desire to glorify God by any other thing. We don't strive to incorporate or to set forth what we would like to do for glorification. We simply only strive to use that name and all that it entails. I'd submit to you then it's a special thing to be called a Christian. It's far more direct and far more narrow than the world's definition, as can be seen in fact in the following. The Christian is an obedient person. How do we know that? What's included in these passages that in seemingly bring that before us? We noticed earlier today that there are many who think that all one needs to be called a Christian is just some measure of belief, some measure of association with a religious organization that claims association to Jesus. But we've already learned that there's teaching, there's dedication, there's learning, and may we submit there's also obedience. And this is now the point at which many will refuse it. They, you see, would prefer to do what they would like to do regardless what God has said. 
But look at some of these verses and some of these ideas. In 1 Peter 4 verse 17, the very next verse following the one where that word Christian is employed, Peter makes this resounding observation. By inspiration, he said, Judgment must first begin at the household of God. And if judgment first begin at us, what shall the end be of them that obey? Not the gospel of God. Thus, those that were the Christians of the previous verse, the ones that were the blessed of God and able to, in fact, suffer as a Christian, are the very ones who he said judgment will first begin at us, and we are the ones obedient. Unless a person is obedient to what God has said, he is not a Christian, regardless what he thinks. The Word of God details for us, then, this issue of Christianity requires obedience to what the Lord has revealed. And that obedience is highlighted also in Romans 6, 17. To the church in Rome, Paul to them had these words to say, "...but God be thanked that you were the servants of God, the servants of sin." But ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you, and being made free from sin, ye became the servants of righteousness. Beautifully and buoyantly, they had obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine that had been delivered. And hence, as obedient, they had become free from sin and thus were Christians. May I submit that many before whom I stand today have enjoyed that same blessing. You also have obeyed from the heart. You have become a Christian, your name enrolled in the book of life. But may we continue to be obedient, not becoming lazy in our efforts for the Master, not becoming those who shirk our duties and responsibilities, because you see, faithfulness is involved in this matter of obedience as well. In Psalm 119, verse number 2, as well as John 14, verse 15, If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. And blessed are they, the psalmist wrote, who do His commandments. May I submit then that of the closing thoughts near the bottom of that slide this morning, these of course should be mentioned. There are some additional passages that indirectly help us see that a Christian is described as a slave or a bondservant. James 1 verse 1, as well as a few other passages... When you and I remember what it was like to be a slave in the old era and in the older days, that person was a servant, a total one who did what the Master said. As Christians, you and I must do the same. We follow the Master whithersoever He goeth. Revelation 14.4 It is in language like that and in ways like that, I would ask you to come near the bottom of that slide. We have learned a great deal about being a Christian today. And we've learned that it's far more than what many in the world think that it is. We've said all that because that's what the Bible describes it to be. And thus that leads me to say this. We see from these passages at the bottom that the Christian was also one who taught. He taught by virtue of the example of his life, but he also, when opportunity presented was able to speak about the truth and greatness of the God of heaven. Woe is unto me if I preach not the gospel, Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 9, 16. We well recall in 2 Timothy 2, 2, that on that occasion Paul challenged all of us still in these words, The things that thou hast heard of me among many witnesses, 
The same commit thou to faithful men who shall be able to teach others also. In our desire to teach others, to show them the way of light, and to lead them to where God would want them to be, we do that because we're Christians. Perhaps in summary to all of these things, let's pull together one final listing of all these characteristics of a Christian and contrast it again to that, bib that dictionary definition we've noted earlier. A Christian is a disciple, is a learner. That person is an assembler with the saints. It is a member of the church. Furthermore, that individual is dedicated to the cause of Christ and not only glorifies the name of Christ, but is unashamed of that name Christian. That person is obedient, is a slave to the cause and rightfulness of Christ, and is a teacher. And so now the question that comes to each of us, how well do I and you fit into that listing? Is God at this point smiling in heaven because you and I follow the things in that list? Or is there one or more elements missing? Am I failing in one or more points with regard to being a Christian as God would wish and have me to be? It is a challenging consideration and it's a thought that warrants our attention. If you are not a member of the church, that would be the place to begin. If today you have never rendered faithful obedience to those introductory matters, that's where you must begin then all the others you can start adding in place. You can be a learner of Christ. You can be obedient to Him. You can in fact be the one whose life would be dedicated to His cause. But unless you are a member of His body, you can't begin. Today, if there would be one or more in this audience that has never rendered faithful obedience to the cause of the Master, we noted it earlier, but we should repeat it. You must believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God. John 8, 24. You must repent of your sins. Luke 13, 3. You, in fact, according to the Scriptures, must confess the name of Jesus as your Savior. Romans 10, verses 9 and 10. And you must be baptized for the remission of your sins. As that is taught, for instance, in passages such as Mark 16, 16, it highlights those initial steps in which you are added to the church, and then you can proceed to develop the skills and abilities to do the rest of all these things. It could be that there's someone here who has begun that journey. You became a member of the church, but you have stopped learning. You have failed in your assembly with the saints. You have, in fact, been disobedient in one or more ways and publicly to His cause. If those have been the case in your life, don't remain in that condition. The Lord wants you back as a faithful Christian at His side. If we could pray on your behalf today as set forth in the example of Acts 8, beginning in verse 20, it would be our delight and our honor to pray with you. If today we could be of assistance to anyone in either of these ways, why not let that be known and make no delay, but do so even now while together we stand and while we sing.